Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Nick Augustine, and I'm your host on this episode of Law Talk Radio, produced by ProServe PR Marketing, the public relations and marketing firm with legal PR practice areas covering family law, litigation, and intellectual property. Support for Law Talk Radio comes from Chris McCarthy of Northwestern Mutual. Chris McCarthy provides individuals and business owners with expert guidance and exclusive access to Northwestern Mutual's life and disability insurance policies. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Please show your support for our programming by visiting and clicking the like button on our social media pages. First, we've got the Law Talk Radio Facebook page, and second, the ProServe PR Marketing page, uh, also on Facebook. You'll also find all of our social media links located on our website, which is located at www.proservepr.com, and I'll spell that for you. It's P-R-O-S-E-R-V-E-P-R.com. All right. From the Law Talk Radio page on our website, you can also listen to recent episodes on demand with our embedded radio player. As well, there's a link to the main Law Talk Radio channel on our host network where all of our shows are parked, dated back to January 1st of 2010. While listening, please feel free to click around and read some blog articles on publicity and marketing for law firms. Today's show is Working with Legal Investigators with Terry Cox from the National Association of Legal Investigators and with his special expertise in criminal investigation, civil investigation, fraud investigation, and security and personal protection consulting, Terry Cox is well-suited to instruct our audience on how and when lawyers should work with a legal investigator. As the current National Director of the National Association for Legal Investigators, Terry works to increase awareness and share information about the nature and scope of the work that its certified investigators perform. Now, attorneys who use legal investigators, we're going to find out how they win their cases, and Terry is the best to tell us how and why. Again, Terry Cox is a certified legal investigator and certified fraud consultant with 20 years of progressive experience and investigative responsibility in public service. Terry worked as an agent for the Mississippi Bureau of of Narcotics and at his local district attorney's office as a senior criminal investigator and as a deputy sheriff and police officer. Terry also worked in the private sector as a coordinator and consultant in the security industry. Today, he's the principal of the Lone Wolf Group and serves as the national director, again, for the Association of a National Association of Legal Investigators. It's NALI. And uh, Terry attended the University of Mississippi and Northeast Mississippi Community College. Terry teaches, speaks, and writes in his field. A website with more information can be found. His website is www.lonewolfgroup.com. Again, that's Lone, L-O-N-E, Wolf, W-O-L-F, group, G-R-O-U-P, dot com, Lone Wolf Group. Okay. We have a good show for you this afternoon. We Callers are always welcome. 917-889-9732 is the call-in number. Again, that's 917-889-9732. Option 1 puts you in our caller queue. By way of disclaimer, this is a general information program. The advice shared on our show does not constitute legal advice. Communications with attorneys and guests on our show does not create uh, attorney-client relationships. And if you have further questions, you should always consult with an attorney in your area. Finally, all callers are confidential and rights to this broadcast are reserved. Now, topics we're going to cover this evening, we're going to talk about number one in our first segment, who hires professional investigators and why. And then in our second segment, we'll talk about what you should look for in a professional investigator. Then after uh, the second break, in our uh, third segment, we'll talk about uh, who should who should hire an investigator and where they should be brought into which matters and what you should expect as the attorney. And also, fourth, in our final segment, we'll talk about where you should look for professional investigators um, and how to um, vet them in the hiring process. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome my guest, Terry Cox. Thanks, Nick. It's a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. Well, I appreciate you giving us your valuable time and sharing your insight on some of these topics. And let me first start by saying some of my best uh, colleagues, as I work as a publicist, are legal investigators. And um, often it's the legal investigators that seek out and find my firm. So, um, you know, it's interesting that we wear many hats and some of the investigators serve as sort of project managers, too. But then again, I think all of us who work in a support capacity in litigation at some point um, all sort of... um, you know, sit around, uh, you know, in a circle and uh, know a lot of uh, colleagues to bring people in. So I'm a big fan. I've worked with investigators before. I'm glad to have you on this show. Tell us first a little bit about how you got to where you are today and uh, why you were interested and, um, you know, how you got to your current role in being on our show. 
Well, I, certainly, Nick. Uh, as a young man, I was a speech and theater education major at Northeast Mississippi Community College and in high school, and I had worked uh, part-time throughout my high school and junior college career at the local radio station here uh, in broadcasting. So when I went to Ole Miss, I needed a part-time job, and I went to student employment over there, and they uh, thought I would be uh, eminently qualified for a weekend dispatcher's position at the uh, University of Mississippi Police Department since I had been in radio. And I learned from them. They took me in, took me under the wings, and I became interested in law enforcement at the time, which at the time in the 70s in Mississippi before minimum standards was enacted was not a profession a lot of people went into, frankly. And there was no professionalism, no standards or anything like that. But the University of Mississippi Police Department is a very, even then at that time, was a very professional organization. And I saw that it could be an honorable career. So I, 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 they took me under the wings. I started learning more and got more interested. So the next year I changed my major and actually went full-time with them and went into criminal justice. Over the years, I served with them and the, a couple of small-town police departments here in my local area, as well as as an agent with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, as you mentioned earlier. I moved to Connecticut in 1986 and uh, worked for the um, one of the five largest uh, pharmaceutical companies in, in the world, Beringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals, as their corporate security coordinator, and then moved back home in January of 1989 to take what I at the time was a dream job of mine I'd wanted since I was 21 years old was a criminal investigator for our local district attorney's office here and I was there for about eight and a half years and then I just felt like I was being led out from there to go into private practice at some level and as I was beginning to plan to open my own practice I was offered a position with the Farise law firm here in North Mississippi who's a third generation family law firm and well respected throughout the, the southeast and the entire nation and they took me in, and I've worked exclusively for them for about three and a half years. And then again, I felt uh, like the good Lord was leading me out again to open my own practice. And they uh, they they blessed that and, and told me, you know, to take the cases I was working on for them and uh, start begin billing them. And I began billing a clientele, and that was 12 years ago, last week. Wow. I've been in my own practice now for 12 years. And uh, the Fereses have been wonderful to me, as well as many other attorneys, uh, you know, they, they're still about 40% of my practice on any given year. And so I, I appreciate the the start that they gave me in private practice, much like the uh, the start I got in, in public service through the University Police Department at a very early age. Because I was 19 years old at the time. Hmm. So go ahead. Yeah, you know, it's funny. If you talk about family law, that's when I first started about investigators as well. Um, working for, um, when I started my uh, a practice uh, doing overflow work for uh, different sole and small firms, I worked with a, a law firm in um, in my area, and they frequently hired um we hired investigators to, you know, we had interesting cases where I remember one was a doctor and the doctor's wife had put a key logger on um, on his keyboard and there was, you know, and I've also worked in things where um, Chicago police officers and another firm, divorce firm, both of the both of the officers were um, internal, one was internal investigations and one was a beat cop and, um, you know, they're messing with each other's squad cars and different things. So, you know, we had investigators following investigators and you know, it's all you know, gathering gathering information. It's a really interesting um, industry. Um, so let's talk a little bit about again. Besides family law firms, who else hires investigators, and why should they? Well, uh, attorneys obviously are number one uh, that people think about that would hire uh, professional investigators. And then you, you obviously have insurance companies, you have government entities, you have business and corporate and financial institutions, and even private citizens. You know, uh, a lot of people do not realize what the, the true professional investigator is capable of these days. We are all kind of bound by the stereotypical ideas of Sam Spade and Jim Rockford and those guys, and it's just not that way. Uh, professional investigators in the 21st century have evolved to be business people. We're all small business people. We have developed skills and training that can help uh, any of these groups that we just talked about in so many different ways other than what people think about just surveillance and background checks and things like that. 
uh, as you said earlier, so many times now in litigation that I'm involved in, I'll do as much managing the case, the witnesses, uh, the discovery materials and things like that than I do the actual going out and investigating the case because a lot of that's already been done through the discovery process. So there's a lot of areas that people just don't think about sometimes that the professional investigator can help them and assist their clients, uh, and not just uh, individuals, but like I said, corporations and financial institutions and fraud and different things that we can expand those practices. And there's so much information available to us now. Mm -hmm. It's not like it was in the 50s and 60s or before computers and the Internet. You know, the Internet's done a, a lot of bad things, but it's got some wonderful things to it. And the advent of the computer has certainly changed the face of the professional investigator and how we conduct our, a lot of our business because there's so much information there available to us a lot of times at our fingertips as opposed to having to go to a courthouse 30 miles away or even downtown and physically pull a record uh, for someone. Uh, it's just so much more efficient and cost-effective for our clients. Well, and the other advantage is that, as you said, you can spend more time, um, you know, wearing the hat of a project manager in a sense, and working on your, you know, working on the, you know, managing the cases themselves and part of the investigation and uh, dealing with discovery and all that, which is a very interesting thing that I would say probably um, out of the lawyers who have not or don't usually use investigators, that is probably one of the main things that they don't understand. And I think that what I read something earlier today that talked about different uh, professionals within law firms, especially larger and mid-sized law firms. And the lawyers see them see it as there's the lawyers and then there's the professionals. But within the professionals, they're not really sure whose title is what or who's doing what. Um, tell us a little bit more about um, the concept of an investigator really working working in the management of the case and helping. So what a little bit more about what types of things and how that has developed over time and what you've seen. Oh, sure. Uh, you know, what I've seen even when I was in public service and now particularly in, in private practice is the lawyers, they, they want the evidence brought to them, and that's what the investigator does. We, the, we are technically the objective third party. We gather whatever evidence is out there. We don't make it up or do anything. We just bring it in. We assimilate it. We put give it to the, the attorneys and let them use it to what, however it might benefit their case. But so many times we can help help them put together how to actually put their case on as far as the, the lineup of the witnesses, uh, what elements of the witness testimony that we need to make sure that we get out to a jury if it's, if it's in a jury situation or in a negotiation situation. Uh, as it might be uh, if, if you're in, in a mediation situation, something like that. But it's so many times it's it's just the sitting down and going through it all and putting it all together in a chronological, logical manner for them to understand that helps them get a better handle on their case itself. So many times lawyers get so excited about a good case, you know, and they get a little down about a case that maybe has got some some qualms to it, and they all have, every case has good points and bad points. Some have more of one side than the other, but so many times we have to draw them back a little bit and say, look, look at this reasonably and rationally and logically, and here's what this person's going to say, and this is how it's going to help you, and so don't don't worry so much about this over there, because they will get so focused on one little issue, they don't they sometimes don't see the big picture and that's where a truly professional investigator who has good sense about that or a good sense of the case can help them better understand how to go forward with their case and how to, to uh, produce the best possible outcome for their clients. Mm -hmm. Now, what types of training do, do many legal investigators go through as, so far as um, litigation and the discovery process so they know how it all works? Well, there's a lot of things available out there. Uh, through NALI, we offer two major uh, training conferences each year, and we'll have varied subjects, and we try to keep them balanced between civil and criminal litigation and some general so that it, they're appealing to all of our membership and others who might wish to, to come. But, you know, there are specific courses on discovery handling, case management. Uh, there are software programs now available that folks can can, can buy, and put everything together, case points one is I, that I'm familiar with, timeline, 
things, all types of things and mechanics that can help put your case together so it's it's logical. Uh, sometimes we get past the logical point, we don't see it, and but you've got to get it, get back to it and look at it in a logical manner so that you can best manage it. And you know, so there's all types of of training and information available for the uh, legal investigators out there. A lot of times I do work that a, a well-trained paralegal would, would technically do because I've done this for so long now, I've gotten a lot of experience at it, and I have a kind of a different take on things sometimes than they might have from being in that office all the time and practicing a specific area. I practice in a, in a pretty broad uh, area in criminal and civil litigation, so sometimes my my perception of things is a little different, and sometimes looking at things with a fresh set of eyes, well-trained eyes, can be very beneficial to the attorneys. Right. Well, it's I you know I, it's easy to get stuck in um, you know motions and limine and other things and other you know it's it's easy. I under I totally understand. Have been in the trenches, and I I get that. And it's this so very valuable. I think to have the um, to have a good working relationship. And after the break, uh, you know, we'll talk a little bit more. And uh, one of the things that I always am interested in is the lawyer and uh, non-lawyer dynamic in working on some of these cases. But I'm going to pause quickly and tell our uh, listeners out there about. It's actually very relevant to our guest today. It's the Nally Conference, 45th anniversary is coming up. So mark your calendars June 9th through. Or, sorry, through June 7th through June 9th at the Hotel Avenue Crown Plaza here in Chicago. The National Association of Legal Investigators holds its national conference to celebrate Nally's 45th anniversary. Presenters at the event include Cynthia Hetherington, myself, Nick Augustine, Andrea Lyon, Todd Thorne, Jed Stone, and representatives from Dynamic Safety and Reed and Associates. Attorneys are encouraged to attend this event, and as always, the presenters for this Nally conference are the best of the best in their fields, and you will learn new information that you can take home and put to use immediately. The presentations are balanced with criminal, civil, and general litigation issues to best educate all attending NALI members and the attorneys who are learning more about working with NALI certified investigators. I'd also like to mention that attorneys who do sign up, um, the conference was very recently approved for, I believe, 10 and a half uh, MCLE credits here in Illinois, so the mandatory continuing legal education credits. 10 credits if you attended. I know there's a June 30th deadline coming up for those of you in part of the alphabet. So uh, you can find out more information, uh, whether you're an attorney or also a public defender colleague, paralegal uh, and attorney, again, are welcome to attend. You can get more information by contacting the NALI office. That's the National Office for the National Association for Legal Investigators at area code 517-372-1500. That number, again, is area code 517-372-1500. Now back to our program with Terry Cox. Terry, I'm excited about this uh, upcoming event um, less than 30 days from now. Uh, it'll be good to, to meet everyone. Why don't we talk a little bit about that quickly? Sure, sure. I, I'm excited about it too, Nick, and we're excited to have you as one of our premier uh, presenters for the conference. Uh, we have chosen, uh, the, as you said in your in your break there, the very best of the best is what Natalie tries to, to put on as far as educational topics in our conferences and we have given uh, special rates for attorneys, paralegals, and the Cook County Public Defender's Office uh, there to encourage them to attend because the topics we'll be talking about are not just for investigators. Now, they they are primarily for them, but I assure you any attorney, paralegal, or public defender, uh, investigator, or attorney that comes from there will, will take home something they can use next week when they go home. Uh, we That's what we want. We like relevant, you know, up-to-the-minute, latest uh, stuff on any topic and, and you know with your with your presentation and you talk about Cynthia Hetherington you know she's she's going to do a, a fantastic job with uh, uh, source investigations and it's just amazing what she can find uh, I don't know what people know about Cynthia but she's somebody I use as a as a uh, example all the time about where investigators come from what types of background and all Cynthia is a librarian. She has a bachelor's and master's degree in library science. So she learned to do research early on in her career, and she has capitalized on that and is one of the most sought-after training uh, people and, and presenters all over the globe now. She has just 
uh, done amazingly. And so that's the caliber of people that we invite to speak at our conferences, and we're just excited to have every one of them that you named a minute ago. And we're looking forward to a stellar event for Nally's 45th anniversary. Yeah, it should be well attended, and I'm looking forward to it as well. And I'd like to highlight that there are, again, so many people who are involved in uh, law firm and litigation. Uh, we had uh, the administrator from the Vitito Law Group on our show last week, my friend Chris, Le- uh, Chris Levinson, and um, we're working on the NFL case, uh, these concussion cases. And it's the firm that uh, people well know the firm through uh, the Aaron Brockovich movie. She's a paralegal there and um, has just done a tremendous job. And there are, uh, you know, it's funny, the picture of the law. There are so many people, and um, few of them are actually the lawyers. Uh, there's so it's like you talked about it takes <laughs> right. a village, and I mean when you really, I mean it makes economic sense to divide and conquer some of these things by people with, like you said, someone with library science experience. Um, you know, can certainly is is an asset. I mean, people can uh, approach as litigation gets more complex and more niche. We get more people from different industries who uh, contribute their talents, and um, I mean, it's really again an opportunity a really good opportunity with some of these bigger uh, pieces of um, litigation. Let's say it's an environmental um, toxin case, and you have people out there interviewing all the members of the community, and if you talk to 100 people and 30 of them mention that they've got a twitch in their right arm, maybe there's something going on. You know? That's exactly right. Exactly. Right. Um, all right, so ta- we were talking a little bit uh, about what professional investigators do, sort of this uh, team approach. And the, it's interesting, the, the division of labor within some of these things and the, the lawyer uh, and professional dynamic, how do you find that and what thoughts do you have? Well, obviously the, the lawyer is always what I call the lead dog. <laughs> they, right. they are in charge, and, and we work with them. And the lawyers I usually work with and, and a lot of, of my colleagues around the country that I talk to all the time, you know, we're a major component of the legal team, and we, we they respect us and we respect them. We all know on the front end pretty much what our job descriptions are, what our areas of responsibility are and everything, but at the end of the day, it's the attorney's responsibility. So we, we, we try and look at it in, in, in that manner. Right. So when an attorney is looking for a professional investigator, mm-hmm. what types of things should they look for? Well, I think, first of all, you've got to look at licensing. Uh, there are only seven states in the United States right now that do not require any type of licensing. Uh, my home state of Mississippi is one of those. Um, so they need to look at their local licensing requirements, wherever they might be. They need to look at the individual and see and ask them if they have uh, E&O insurance, uh, professional liability insurance. Uh, they need to see if they have any type of professional certifications, uh, whether they are certified legal investigator or certified fraud examiner. Uh, or there are a number of different um, certifications legal investigators can attain out in our out in the world there. But for some of them, are very niche oriented, uh, financial. Uh, some are criminal. Some are civil. But uh, that's always something to look for because. It doesn't necessarily guarantee that that individual is an outstanding investigator, but it gives the person looking for an investigator the idea that at least that person has gone so far as to put themselves to the test to acquire that certification and to to maintain it. Because to be a CLI, as I am, and and there are only 80 of us in in the United States, we have to recertify every three years. So that tells you that that person has put their skills to the test, they've been tested, and they've at least done that to show the, their level of professionalism. But talk, go ahead. Let's talk a little bit more in depth about those um, those requirements for the certification. Uh, what What's all involved? Well, in, in NALI's uh, Certified Legal Investigator Program, you're required to submit a white paper. You apply to be accepted to the program first. The We have a CLI director. Uh, chairperson who is David Luther from Houston, Texas, currently, and he would uh, you would contact him. You fill out the application. He accepts you into the program. You have to do a white paper on an investigative topic, which is reviewed uh, peer reviewed through his committee. Uh, that's one third of the grade grading process. Then there's a very very comprehensive written exam that they have to set for, and it's we call it we consider it the bar exam for investigators, frankly. And then on top of that they have to do a a practical examination 
and then they have to set for a peer uh, ethics evaluation as well and examination. So it's a pretty long process, and it's 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 pretty grueling, frankly. I went through it in 1998, and it took me about six or seven months just to prepare the the recommended reading materials and study materials that they recommended at the time, and they've not changed much other than just some current more current stuff that's come along. So it's a it, but it's one of those things that once you achieve that, once you get the CLI or whether it's a CCDI, which is a criminal defense uh, investigator uh, as well through another organization or the CFE or whatever it is, you, you have worked. You have, you have truly worked and educated yourself to a level that it, now you can, the, the world will know that you have worked to achieve that professional credential. It's, it's not any different from some states and their bar associations offer some specific specialty credentials for, for lawyers and stuff. And they, I'm sure they have to go through specific criteria to get that. It's the same type of thing. But it, it's something that's uh, it's very cherished as far as the CLIs within NALI are concerned. Uh, and like I said, once you get it, you don't want to let it go because it's too hard to get it again. Well, I can certainly appreciate that. Anyone who has uh, dealt with bar exam study and prep and has put their life on hold for three months and... Uh, <laughs> exactly. You know, I would, would certainly agree with uh, with that. So, so once someone has attained that, so again, it's good to look for a professional investigator with um, with the CLI credential. What other types of um, references or other types of things, uh, types of, uh, you know, do certain investigators specialize in certain practice areas or? Go ahead, Nick. Sorry. Yeah, no, just do they specialize in certain practice areas, or what are other things to look for? Some people do. Some people have a niche practice that they've been able to work into and, and specialize in those areas. Many of us, uh, I'm a single practitioner, and I, I'm in a more what I consider a rural market area here in North Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama, and Arkansas. Um, you know, the, the largest city near me is Tupelo, Mississippi, which is about 35,000 people. If you're in the Chicago area or New York or some large metropolitan area, obviously there's a bigger base of, of clients to draw from, and there may be a more specific niche area that you can get into, whether it is product liability, accident reconstruction, uh, criminal defense, or whether it might be mass tort litigation, that type of thing. Um, you know, it, it just depends on where the individual is, and, and a lot of them have specific expertise. Uh, in medical fields and things that they can turn into a niche practice as well. Mm-hmm. We're going to pause for uh, our next break, and then when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about when you should bring an investigator into a matter and what you should expect and how to prepare if you've never worked with an investigator before. But first, I want to tell everybody out there that Clerk Dorothy Brown needs your help. Volunteers are needed, and they will earn 2.5 MCLE credits for participating in this year's 2012 Expungement Summit and Training, hosted by the Clerk of the Circuit Court of Cook County. The training sessions take place on May 23rd and May 24th from 3 to 5.30 p.m. at 69 West Washington on the 17th floor. Again, May 23rd and May 24th, 3 to 5.30 at 69 West Washington, the Cook County Building, 17th floor. The training uh, for the attorneys will uh, encompass everything that the attorneys know to need to know uh, to help individuals prepare an expungement petition so they can uh, assist and advise members of the general public, as I said, with expungement and sealing applications for juvenile and adult misdemeanor and felony incidents that occurred in Cook County. I'll say that again. It's for juvenile and adult misdemeanor and felony incidents taking place in Cook County. Now, this year's Expungement Summit takes place on Saturday, June 2nd at the Apostolic Church of God located at 6320 South Dorchester Avenue in the city of Chicago from 8.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. Again, that's the June 2nd, the Apostolic Church of God, 6320 South Dorchester in Chicago from 8.30 to 6 p.m. For additional information, you can dial 312-603-5200 or 312-603-0467. And you can also find a flyer for the Expungement Summit on the Clerk of the Circuit Court website located at cookcountyclerkofcourt.org. Again, that's cookcountyclerkofcourt.org. This expungement um, seminar should be a good uh, good time, the expungement summit, rather, and there are all sorts of uh, individuals from Cook County Administration who will be there, so 
uh, you know, if you are a young attorney in a transition or looking for a job, I mean, here's a good opportunity to volunteer. You never know, you might run in to meet someone. And uh, I always talk to people who get phone calls from someone who wants, someone always needs something expunged from their record or someone's kids trying to apply to school and need something expunged or something. So uh, I always hear that no one, no one really knows how to do it, but everyone knows someone who knows. And uh, why not be the person who knows how to do it yourself and earn some uh, MCLE, MCLE uh, credit in the process. So uh, check that out. All right, now back to our program with Terry Cox. We're going to talk a little bit more about when an, uh, an investigator should be brought into a matter and what should you expect. Again, if you're an attorney who's never worked with an investigator, let's say you're a family law attorney and you've uh, maybe used investigators for uh, you know special process service, uh, when you uh, can't find uh, the the opposing party, I mean, a lot of people I know like that's the end of their knowledge base when it comes to working with investigators, um, you know, or maybe they know about asset searches and whatnot. But um, so, tell us a little bit more about how and how it all works and what the firm should think about. Sure, Nick. You, you know, my my recommendation always is to bring an investigator into your case early on, because a lot of times you may not realize at the time that you may need one, but it may be that before one day you turn around and say, oh, my goodness, we need an investigator in this, and we need someone right away. If you bring them in early and fully brief them in the case, they can help you better uh, direct the case a lot of times and get a better grasp on uh, how to, to go forward with it, whether or not you need to do certain things and, and how to do them uh, based on their expertise and based on uh, their uh, case uh, cases in the past, they can offer you a lot of advice and information about that. So I always recommend that uh, you bring an investigator in early on, no matter what type of case it is. Even if you don't think you're going to need one for a while, if you think there may be any chance at all, bring them in and consult with them. Uh, a lot of times they'll do it for free. Sometimes they won't. Sometimes it costs you a little money, but at least knowing you've got somebody qualified on board whenever you're ready and, and you can call and consult with them from time to time is all is is very valuable, uh, and I think that's an extremely uh, important thing for you, for attorneys to think about when they're uh, looking at any type of case. And so many times, you know, people don't think about what they need to do. Sometimes I, I can't tell you how many times I've actually investigated the client just to kind of verify before a, a firm got involved in a case that what the story that they were telling about their case was actually uh, the truth because sometimes things just don't add up. And so we, I've, I've done that you know, for, for firms before they commit to a case, particularly in plaintiff's cases. So you, know, you never know exactly how, things, how you may need an investigator, but believe me, there are so many ways that you may not have thought of that if you sit down and talk to a really professional investigator for just a few minutes, they can help direct you in, in how they can help you. Mm-hmm. Well, it's uh, I think investigating the client is uh, certainly an interesting thing, especially when um, in domestic relations you often don't, um, you know, you take your client as you find them, and uh, you're getting one side of the story, and sometimes you never really know at the end That's of the day. Exactly right. um, That's exactly right. But I can imagine if you're representing someone, let's say you're uh, representing someone who's a minority shareholder in a, in a company and um, there's litigation. I mean, there's a lot, there can be a significant amount at stake. And, um, you know, if the if the attorney is conducting their affairs on the representations of a client and the client is not being truthful, that opens up a new, a whole new can of worms. Uh, what kind of things can happen when you find out um Things are not what they seem to be. Oh, it can be a complete game changer. You know, uh, if you find out your client has not been completely forthcoming with you and and have, has held back serious information that changes the entire uh, complexion of the case, it can be a complete game changer for the firm and for the attorneys involved because uh, they, they've been operating under the assumption that what the, the client has told them is true and they're, they've been crafting their case and doing depositions possibly and direct investigations based on that information and then through probably and usually through some of the investigation that a good professional investigator is doing, they find out that things are not quite what the client is, has uh, told them. And so then you have to have to have that dreaded sit-down meeting with the client and say, look, we found this out and why haven't you told us this? And 
you know, this is completely changing the complexion of your case, and we may have troubles here. You know, so they have, because the client has not given them the proper information and been forthcoming on the front end, they have expended tremendous resources many times and gone to a lot of expense at their own expense many times because of that, and that's, that's just not a good place to be. Yeah. You know, I, I tell clients often, uh, whether it's in criminal defense or plaintiff's work or, or even defense work, whatever it might be, and I tell witnesses this when I'm interviewing on this all the time too, to just tell me the truth. All I'm looking for is the truth. I can deal with the truth. I don't deal with surprises very well because that's that's just not a good place to be. Tell me the truth, and, and it is what it is. You know, good, bad, or indifferent to the, to my client, I just need to know what the truth is. And if the client's truthful with you, then you can better direct the investigation in the, uh, the the complexion of the case. But if they're not, and you find that out later, then it can cause some real problems. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and also I think that there's, um, you know, potential... Uh, you know, finger pointing of dear investigator, why didn't you find this out? Or you know, you should have you should have known this. Or um, you know, I, sometimes it's not knowing really who's who's to blame, so to speak. And so let's talk a little bit more about the how how to have a good relationship with your investigator. Um, what are your tips and thoughts? Well, I think you have to, that we we would expect the attorneys we work for to consider us and treat us as professionals as we do them and with the respect that, that comes along with that. Um, you know, the first time you work with somebody, you're still getting to know them. You're still getting to know how they work. Uh, you, they may have been referred to you by somebody that you know very well and they've had great uh, success with the, with the investigator and their firm and they're just, you know, very pleased with them. But still, until you develop that personal relationship, it's always a, a little bit iffy as, as to you know how things. It's kind of like a marriage; you're getting to know each other, you know, for a while. So, uh, I like to sit down with a new client and discuss the, the case with them, discuss how they like things done, whether it's reporting or you know uh, how often do you want me to talk to you about things, uh, how do we want to you know, proceed with this. And that that way you develop that relationship. You kind of and you know on the front end what is kind of expected from each of you, the attorney and the investigator, so that the, there's no surprises from each other. So that you can, I can go out and do my work based on the parameters we've set. He, the the attorney knows kind of what to expect based on the parameters we've set. So if something changes in the middle, then we have to sit, have to sit down and have that discussion again as to why this was done or that was done and how it got done that way when we had a, a, a meeting and had everything kind of decided, you know, an agreement kind of on the front end. And, and attorneys are different. They're, they're Some like things done a certain way, others like it done another way. So uh, I keep little notes on some of my attorneys because some of them like reports done in a certain way. Some of them don't want reports. Some of them want very brief reports. Some of them don't want them until the completion of my investigation. Some of them want them in almost real time, as quickly as I can get them done. So it's it's building those relationships and, and knowing how to work with that attorney um, and how they like things done. Then you develop that mutual respect and mutual work relationship with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, when you talk, uh, one of the things going through my head as you're talking about, I picture the the exchange, and I'm always, I'm of course, I'm always picturing the billing sheet. <laughs> um, who usually pays? What's what's customary, or is it is it different? Where you know you're retained directly by client, or um, you know, do most of the law firms hire you, um, and you know the client pays them? What what are some of the um, things that you've seen, and why? Well, that will vary. Uh, Nick, I always work. I only work with people who have retained counsel. Uh, that's the difference in a private investigator and a legal investigator. Uh, I primarily do legal investigations, and that's when an attorney is involved in, in the case. Uh, oftentimes, particularly in criminal defense cases, the client will actually pay my fee, but it comes through the attorney, and, and that way, it's, it's, it helps solidify the privilege as well and that sort of thing. Uh, most of the time on plaintiff's cases or civil cases, I'm hired directly by the by the law firm, and they pay me directly. 
uh, billing is, is done directly to them. They may seek reimbursement depending upon whether it's a corporate situation or if it's a plaintiff's case or if it's an uh, insurance defense case, whatever it might be, from their client. But routinely, I work directly through that through the law firm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's you, one of the things you mentioned was privilege, and I know that we've talked to our friend Susan Carlson before about uh, some of these issues. Tell us a little bit about the concerns of privilege and where privilege attaches and applies and where it uh, doesn't. Well, routinely, uh, my understanding of the privilege is as a member of an uh, individual's uh, legal team, uh, that the privilege extends to me. So anything that the client and I discuss is privileged. But if there's someone else in the room, and so oftentimes spouses, family members, and that type of thing may be in a room, whatever they say, if it's incriminating, may not be privileged to them. So oftentimes when we're having those discussions, I will actually ask people to leave the room and explain to them that the privilege does not attach to them. They could possibly, if he, the individual tells me something that might be incriminating to them, they could possibly be brought into court and subpoenaed by the other side to testify to what they heard against the client and their loved one, and they don't want to be put in that position. So that, that's generally a general understanding of how I deal with the privilege. Mm-hmm. Another, you know, and also um, in addition to privilege, there I just pulled out this article I was reading the other day. I haven't had a chance to write on it yet, but it's regarding e-discovery. And there was a judge in a court. I don't remember where this. It was out east somewhere, and they were talking about e-discovery and some of the software that was coding um, emails. And so where where there was a case where uh, there were voluminous emails, the software was supposed to, um, you know, find any email that had uh, the attorney uh, carbon copied or, it, you know, um, certain keywords like confidential attorney eyes only, you know, um, you know, in language that conspicuously indicates that this is, you know, a product of um, this email is being sent for legal advice or, you know, advice on the matter or whatever. And what's interesting is that the when the person first drafted the email, they had a draft, and the draft sat for a while, and the software picked it up, and they you know there's a back and forth on whether the email was uh, you know really privileged or not. Oh, really? Um, and the court allowed the you know talked about the software and said sorry that's um, it was disclosed, and they tried to you know keep it out, but they they didn't win on that. And um, so it's really you really have to be very careful. Um, because, again, with everything that's electronic, I mean, I know some people who will just, you know, phone calls only and take your own personal handwritten notes, you know. Right. Yeah. Uh, I have some clients like that, too. They they want to keep as little out of paper as they can, particularly well, in federal cases. Right, right. And, you know, especially where, um, you know, when we have so much of this technology, it's, it's not only that there's something that they're worried about finding, but it's it's easier sometimes to know. I mean, the the expense. Um, let's say you have someone who's deposed and they know nothing, and everyone knows they know nothing. But um, you know, your opponent has the right to call them for a deposition. I mean, this clients are spending money. I've seen I've seen you know countless depositions where I, I can tell like this is a financial thing. They're trying to shut the other side down. Um, sure. You know, in the pocketbook. Right, they're wearing them down. Sure. And that happens oftentimes, particularly when you get into big, big litigations. So, uh, yeah, we, we see that from time to time too. Mm-hmm. So, so then, so really, again, the practice areas uh, are sort of not, not really limited. Um, could be pretty much anything involving litigation, but what and what and transactional too, right? Oh, absolutely, sure, sure. Give us some examples, if you could, things that you've seen. Uh, the, the litigation aspects now, you know. We are, in fact, Nally is looking at a constitutional amendment uh, to our uh, organization's constitution to crack the door open a little more to people who are involved in litigation in niche areas, particularly uh, that were not qualified currently. Uh, we, it's going on our ballot, which goes out next week for our uh, annual uh, voting. Um, but we've seen in, even in the last five years, particularly in ten years, but even in the last five years, areas of people in in the investigation profession who are not what I call street investigators. They don't go out and interview people. They don't go out and work crime scenes. They are primarily research people. Uh, they're forensics people. They are uh, doing uh, all types of stuff with 
uh, computers, cell phones, any type of electronic uh, forensics as well, handwriting folks who support us a lot of times as the investigator because we call on them for their expertise to help us support our attorneys and, and our clients. So we're seeing more and more of that, a more expansion, a bigger expansion of the investigative profession in areas that five, ten years ago we never even dreamed were there. You know, it's it's just new. It's evolving all the time. Yeah, you know, and that's what's also evolving is the um, the number of attorneys out there. We had a statistic recently that there were seventy five thousand. Like, I don't know if it was national, maybe it was, but seventy five thousand new admitted attorneys every year and fifty thousand new clients every year. Um, so it's kind of staggering statistics, but. You know the in, the legal industry again is you know as things are getting more complex, there are more lawyers, there's more litigation. It just seems to be a monster growing out of control sometimes. But there are a lot of players in the game, and um, it seems that we are more able to. And to the extent that the goal is the administration of justice and to do justice, um, you know, just looking at you, you were saying um, saying something about the uh, the other experts and handwriting experts. Um, you know, there's so much going on out there, and there's so many more experts out there to work with who can really get to the heart of the matter. I know that um, just in family law, for example, you have someone who is a small or a minority shareholder in a, a private, you know, in a business, and that's something that's private, not publicly traded. And how many times I've seen people just sort of um, do like a, a thumbnail evaluation of the, what's the business's value. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, scary because a lot of people suggest that that's malpractice. Um, you know, and investigating the true value of the business. And when you get into, um, you know, family-held businesses, there's all sorts of ways you, uh, you know, different people can hide hide things. And, oh, sure. You know, and just what do you do? Just like take the person on their word? No, and you can't do that. You know, and the other side, the other side of that that case, you know, should be smart enough to either hire a good investigator who has financial uh, background who can do some forensic uh, investigation, or a good forensic accountant, or somebody to help eva- find those assets and and uh, get a good evaluation for that uh, that client. Because if they don't, like you said, it's so easy for folks to hide stuff, particularly in a family-owned business like that, uh, that, that they they may uh, not end up nearly as well off as they might have in the property settlement situation that they, they might have if they just expended a little money uh, to get that done. It could make a tremendous difference in the outcome of their their case. Oh, right, especially when someone hides the um, – I've seen this where someone will – you know, the one spouse will say, I know there's money out there, I just know it, and someone will um, make it easier to find a dummy account that has a lump sum of cash and um hoping that the um the other spouse will say, Ha gotcha. Well meanwhile, you know, the, the big the big prize is uh hiding somewhere else and no one knows about it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, what, yeah, what types of um what types of different resources are there that you can tap into and use? I suppose there are all sorts of uh um paid member based um sites and um or you know, where where do you where can you get all the information? There, there are some uh, really good data uh, providers that have some of that information that can help direct investigations. Sometimes it can't give you the specific information, but it can give you leads into how to further investigate the, the matter and where to look. And uh, a lot of that, the financial uh, assets investigations, is pretty meticulous, and it takes a good bit of training to really do that very well. Uh, a certified fraud examiner, certified fraud consultants like myself and other folks who have had some specific training in those areas can be very beneficial to, to folks who need that type of work done for them. Mm-hmm. 
we're we're gonna we're gonna pause and uh, take our final break, and then finish out with talking a little bit more about where you should go to hire a, a professional investigator, and a, a few more of the finer details of attorneys working with legal investigators. So I want to tell you this is our uh, last message of the show, and it's our host message. I want to let you know that we have a consulting program here at ProServe PR Marketing, and um, from solo practitioners on up through large law firm managers, we work with different people to do roundtable um, presentations and lunch and learning workshops to help with business development, um, You know, not only with transactional but litigation attorneys as well, but uh, business development, media relations, digital media, public relations, marketing, all these different uh, opportunities you can leverage your achievements and contributions, again, not only for the small firm and solo practitioner, but for the junior associate or junior level partner looking to uh, be noticed at the firm and, um, you know, make their way up the chain, so to speak. So uh, you can get in touch with us and find out more about setting up a roundtable event or a, a lunch and learn workshop. Telephone number we can be reached at is 312-505-2604. Mm-hmm. Telephone number again is 312-505-2604. All right, back to our program with Terry Cox. from He's the uh, national uh, director of the National Association of Legal Investigators. And, uh, Terry, tell us a little bit about your um, – your uh, firm as well, and you know, you said you're more of a generalist there. I am. I have a, a pretty general practice here, uh, Nick. Like, like I said, I'm I'm located in northeast Mississippi, in the tri-state area of Alabama, Tennessee, and Mississippi. Uh, it's a, what I consider a more rural market than a, a larger metropolitan area like Chicago or New York or even Miami or someplace, or even Memphis, uh, which is about 100 miles from me. But I, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be able to work. I've been able to work with uh, attorneys all over the country. Uh, I've worked with Roy Black in Miami uh, a few years ago when we represented Scott Sullivan, who is the chief financial officer of WorldCom, uh, which was uh, kind of a, a neat thing. And, uh, and so it's it's nice to be able to have worked on some really substantial cases, even being located here in Northeast Mississippi. Uh, the, one of the other cases that I worked on uh, back in 2006 and seven was the Mary Winkler case in Tennessee, which was the preacher's wife, which was on CNN every day for 14 months, and uh, we've had a lifetime movie made out of it and everything. Uh, it was it was very uh, uh, interesting to work on as well, and it got a lot of a lot of publicity over that period of time. But you know, I, my practice itself is more general because out of necessity because of, of the realness of the area that I've, I work in and the attorneys. But like I said, I work with attorneys all over the country. So it's it's I have some, a few specialized areas, criminal defense and some personal injury and uh, some plaintiff areas. But uh, pr- primarily it's uh, I'm a, a general practitioner as well. Right. So and as you've identified, uh, you know, this leads into my next question of where do you find people and knowing that, some of the best people, there's, what, 80, 80 uh, of the people with the CLI designation in the country, the Certified Legal Investigator designation, you know, 80 people. Um, so how, you know, you don't necessarily just look in the phone book for who's down the street who's an investigator. No, you don't. I'll tell you, the primary way I think any attorney should uh, contact an investigator or uh, locate an investigator, in, even if it's not in their uh, area, I get calls from all over the country uh, from time uh, often different areas of the country, people I was referred to you by. Referrals are 90% of my practice, direct referrals. Uh, and that's the best type of uh, advertising you can get. When you have a satisfied client that you've worked with in the past and someone calls them and say, I need help in Tupelo, Mississippi, or Memphis, Tennessee, or Jackson, Mississippi, or Los Angeles, California, uh, we have you know members, uh, Natalie has members all over the country, then they can give you a name and a phone number, and you automatically have some assertion that that individual is is qualified. They've performed well in the past for your friends and all uh, that that they know. Now, if you can't get a direct referral uh, in an area, then you know what I recommend is you check with the local, state, national, or international associations uh, of investigators, and there are several. Uh, about each state has at least one. Uh, Tennessee, which I belong to because it's a neighboring state, has three. So you can go to their websites and sometimes check uh, there or call an attorney in that area for a possible referral and see who they might refer you to. 
uh, the Yellow Pages. You know, people still use the Yellow Pages, but I, I think it's getting, beginning to become a little antiquated. And I know from conversations with, with folks like you, Nick, who do PR work and stuff, the Yellow Pages just don't do what they used to do. People are going to the Internet for almost everything. So um, you know, that's my thought. I, I don't even have a Yellow Page ad anymore and only ran one for a couple of years and got maybe four or five calls out of it and maybe got one case out of the entire thing. So, you know, it's direct referrals, the best way in the world uh, to get uh, hooked up with the right person. And oftentimes if it's someone, if it's a specific area that you need, then you that person can help direct you to the proper person that's helped them in the past. Yeah, you know, and it's just it's just getting on the phone and starting to do the work and finding, you know, other people and asking other people. I mean, everything has, um, you know, I preach a lot of uh, referral marketing and help people, you know, develop that referral mindset. But it, it's, you know, it is so true that everything I'm I, I'm trying to think of ah, any piece of business that I didn't have that was a referral. And it's just not. It's there's not much of it. Almost everything has been a referral. And again, um, my friend Susan Carlson is a good referral source. And absolutely right. And she found me. She found me through just searching on online. And um, you know, found, and it always has connections to other people. I mean, there's really it's, it's people think it's. I think people just get scared of the concept of of earning referrals. It's not hard. You just have to. Tell people what you do. Have some sort of platform uh, for them to see, touch, and feel, and get some testimonials and get some ideas about you because consumer psychology kind of demands it. But um, just making yourself available to people and just reaching out and saying hello. I mean, you never know who you talk to now could like send someone five years down the road. You just never know. Oh, absolutely. You know, and a prime example of that is a couple of years ago, I was invited to speak at the. Uh, regional Mississippi Bar Association uh, conference that they had at the Mississippi University for Women in Columbus, Mississippi. And I was given a one-hour time slot, and it was essentially the effective use of a professional investigator, much like what we've talked about today. And it was for paralegals, but it was open to attorneys as well. Well, it ended up there were about 30 participants that day, and about 20 of them were attorneys and not paralegals. And I did my, you know, my, my little presentation and. It went very well, and we you know, spoke to a number of people, and I left. The next week, an attorney from Columbus called me and said, I saw you last week. I was very impressed. i got a client I'd like to refer you to. It was a missing persons case, and uh, they, they, he put us together, brought, brought us together in his office. We sat there, and it was a very, very dramatic uh, missing persons case that had been going on for a while there in the Columbus area. And through that exposure, of just going down there and speaking for an hour to this group of attorneys and paralegals, I got the second largest initial retainer in my in my 12-year practice on one case. Yep. So you never you never know where the business is going to come from. You never know who you're talking to and who they might refer to you. Like I said, it may be a year from now, maybe a week from now, maybe five years from now. But if you impress people and let them feel like you know are competent, you know what you're doing, you present yourself well and your profession well, then they will remember you and they will call you when the time comes. Yeah, it's true. It's just your deposit. I always say to people, um, you never know who's going to receive information about you and you know print something out um, and say, wow, this is the best person. I, you know, I will call this person when I need a handwriting expert. For example, there's a guy, Warren Spencer, here in Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, found him through... I don't remember now how I found him, but I found him for a client who had a was doing a probate matter where the um, the person who was the uh, estate administrator was running fast and loose with a checkbook, and um, we had the handwriting expert come and do different samples and you know prove that the check was a forgery. It was just a good day in court. The judge kind of um, you know stood up and say, "Absolutely, the money belongs to the estate," you know. But we couldn't have done it without that. Without sure. that uh, handwriting expert, and there's not—it's not that easy to just go find a good handwriting expert. So when you get—and again, it's all word of mouth, uh, really. So you know, the people who do good work and the law firms that have good practices, you know that if you ask the right person, uh, you know they'll have—you know—if they don't have a direct, you know, lead, they'll have someone else who can suggest. It. And that's how everyone's finding each other. And you know, Facebook and 
social media opportunities are, are so prevalent there as well. I mean, the, the the whole, I mean, I'll tell you, the the whole reason I got hooked up with that Aaron Brockovich law firm, the Vitado Group, out in L.A., is through my friend Kim, who I know from Facebook, probably from the radio show or mm-hmm. something else, because I worked in, in at Los Angeles after law school in entertainment management, not even in law, um, you know, so you just never know. Uh, so I look forward to talking about some of these things and more at the upcoming uh, Nally Conference. So again, that's June 6th and June, I'm sorry, June 7th or 9th, 7th, 8th and 9th. Right. Well, it'll be a good time. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you there, Terry, and I want to thank you again for being our guest this afternoon. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure. I appreciate your invitation to, to be on your program today. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope that whatever I've uh, had to say today will be beneficial to your listeners. And if I can leave you with anything uh, other than to please uh, come and be and participate in Nally's 45th annual uh, conference, uh, June 7th through 9th, is if information is power, then a professional investigator is the conduit to that power. That's a very good. That's a very good way to end. <laughs> it's, and it's true. Information is power, and having the conduits to find the information puts the power in the hands of the lawyer. And the lawyer can't do everything all the time. So, um, again, I want to thank our guest Terry Cox. I'd also like to thank our listeners and guests for tuning into this episode of Law Talk Radio, brought to you by ProServe PR Marketing and with support from Chris McCarthy of Northwestern Mutual. Chris McCarthy provides individuals and business owners with expert guidance and exclusive access to Northwestern Mutual's life and disability insurance policies. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Law Talk Radio episodes are programmed to entertain and bring our legal industry professionals, consumers, and guests the tips, tools, and news they can use to be better informed practitioners and consumers. Again, this is Nick Augustine for Law Talk Radio, and as always, I thank you for your time.